We're beginning a, I don't know, 60, 80 week series. How long this is going to last? Uh, we're going to be here a while, not in this passage of Exodus, um, but talking about the church. Now, I started to title the series A Theology of the Church, but I figured people wouldn't come. Um, if, if they was, oh, good, it's a seminary lecture. No, no, it's not. But that, that is what we're talking about. It really, this, we're going to look at over the next, and I, I jokingly say 60, 80 weeks, it could be a year that we work through the entire Bible talking about the church, talking about living called out and what that looks like. And we have to go all the way back. We could have easily gone all the way back to uh, Genesis, but we didn't. Uh, we're going to start a little, bef- a little after that, just a you know, few thousand years. Uh, and we're going to look at the church in the Old Testament first. We're going to look at uh, uh, Je- uh, Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6 this morning. You know, the church has ex- always existed. There has always been a church. Now, it hasn't always been called that. In the, the Old Testament, uh, it was called God's people or the people of God. That was the, the phrase that was used over and over and over for what was the church. And they didn't have the word church. You know, it was synagogue. It was that, uh, that kind of thing. Different, different, but that's where we trace the church back to, this, this Old Testament uh, people of God. Then it, along comes the, uh, the New Testament, and, and we get this Greek word called ekklesia, which literally means called out. It, it really, sadly enough, it could almost be translated committee. Um, but I didn't want to call you know, the church as committee. I didn't want to do that series either. That didn't sound too exciting, the church as committee. But that's what we are, a group of people, a membership that is called out of the, the community, out of the, the larger group of humanity and set apart. Now, these are these are different names, right? People of God versus ecclesia or, or church. Uh, different people, ethnically, primarily, but not exclusively, as we're going to see this, ethnically Jewish people, but now a, 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 an extremely diverse ethnicity in the church, but always the same purpose. The purpose of the people of God never changed. It, it, it didn't, you know, when the New Testament came, we didn't suddenly say, okay, now that it's the church, we have a different purpose, or we're going to fix the purpose of the Old Testament. No, in fact, it is the same purpose throughout history. Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6, tell us about that a little bit. Go with me there if you haven't turned there already. Scripture says, in the third month, On the same day of the month that the Israelites had left the land of Egypt, they entered the wilderness of Sinai. After they departed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now, if you listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although all the earth is mine. 
and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. Now, Israel, I'm not going to give you all the history of the Israelites, but they have spent 400-some even years of uh, slavery in Egypt. And then over this last year, prior to, to this event, they had seen the, the plagues of Egypt. So about a year of plagues, they saw God's power. They, they saw him, uh, and it's a great sermon series to talk about, but they had basically seen God take on most of the major Egyptian gods with each of those plagues. Each one of those plagues in some way was, if not particularly designed to by God, but I'm sure it was, it at the very least told the Egyptians, you worship let me tell you how I control that. You worship this, let me tell you how I control that. You worship the Nile, let me turn it red for you and so show you that I have power over that. So the Israelites have seen this power uh, over the years. Now they're going to spend about a year listening to God at this mountain, hearing from God, and, and in fact seeing his power as it, uh, as it unfolds as well. Uh, in some ways, later on, in ways they didn't really want to, right? Uh, they weren't counting on the earth crack, swallowing a number of them because of their rebellion and, and other things like that. But they're going to see manna, uh, fall, bread fall from heaven. They're going to see quails show up in flocks that they can feed on. They're going to see water come out of rocks. All while they're sitting here listening, basically, in church for a year as God teaches them about who he is. But what we need to see here in verses uh, 1 through 2 especially, we see clearly that this is, there are many non-Israelites here as well. It's not just Israelites. Uh, we know for a fact that Moses' first two wives were not Israelites. And you can read that. The, the scriptures are up there on that, uh, the next part of the slide. Uh, Exodus 2, Exodus 4. Numbers 12 tells us that those women, or his first two wives, weren't Israelites at all. Uh, Caleb, we find out in Numbers chapter 13, wasn't an Israelite. Uh, this idea here, uh, as they departed uh, uh, Egypt, it, it refers to them in Exodus 12, 38, as a mixed multitude. There were all kinds of people. Already, the people of God was a diverse group, uh, an ethnically diverse group. Egyptians were in there. Uh, others from various areas of, of Palestine or Israel now were a part of that group. It was, it was incredible to see to our eyes, to our Western American eyes, it probably would have looked very uh, homogeneous. We would have looked at it and said, well, they kind of look all the same to us. But to them, they knew it's not just about Israel. Well, they may have had a head knowledge of that, but uh, oftentimes their heart knowledge of, of God's diversity in the church was not where it should have been, and, and we see that as we move through their history. Still, though, with all this diversity, with all these groups uh, of people that, that didn't come from the same uh, parentage, Abraham, we still see them as God's people. God's 
says. They are my people. I rescued them. They are mine, he says. Yahweh has a three-part message here for his people in Exodus. I I think he's going to have a three-part message for, for us, too. But let's talk about that message for just a second. This message is a covenant. That's the word that's used. It is a covenant. Now, biblical scholars, much smarter than me, have, have looked through history, and they can tell you about Hittite covenants and this kind of covenant and suzerain treaties and all these different things, and they all uh, are, are good historical foundations to look at the, this, this covenant with the people that God has. But the best way we can look at this covenant and, and kind of get it in our head is God's the one with all the power, and, and we are not. And there's the covenant. Um, he does it, he says it, and, and we, we obey or, well, really, or else. I mean, that's kind of what it boils down to. We're going to see he's patient with that. He's very loving in his, his loving kindness. That, uh, that's an English word that we had to kind of make up when we translated the Hebrew word chesed. That's what the Old Testament says about God. It has this word that we were like, how do you, how do you do it? Well, it's, it's more than just he loves them. It's more than he's just kind. It's loving kindness. It's a huge, huge describe God. That is his attitude toward the people in this covenant. In, in this covenant that he says, not only when I make this covenant, I'm the one with all the power, he also says, I'm the one that will always keep the covenant. And you, you won't, people, but I will always keep my end. So even if you break it, I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. That should, as, specifically as Baptists, get us to our, our belief in, our, our biblically, scripturally based belief in the fact that once we come to Christ in salvation, we can never be taken away from that. We can't lose our salvation. Why? Because God makes the covenant and says, I'm going to keep it. We can go all the way back to Abraham when, when he, they split the animals. Go back and read it if you want to in Genesis. It's an interesting story. They split the animals, did this very, very Middle Eastern covenant. Who walked between the animals to prove the covenant? Did Abraham do it? Nope. God. God put all the onus on himself to keep the covenant. That's what's happening here. This message that he has is, is a covenant. And he can make this covenant because he has proven himself to the people. There, there, there are some people that would question, why did God wait until now in our scripture, wait till this point in scripture, to come up with the Ten Commandments? Because that's where we're headed here in just a couple of chapters. Why did he wait until then? Why didn't he tell them way back when, uh, you know, when they first got to Egypt? Or, or go further back. And, and there's an interesting uh, midrash that uh, uh, Hebrew scholars, have, Jewish scholars have used to explain it. Basically, he, what they say is, if a king comes to your city, comes to your town, or, or just a guy comes to your town and says, hey, I want to be your king, therefore, you do everything I tell you to, and I will, you know, I'll take care of you, I'll build your walls, I'll, I'll pave your roads, I'll, I'll do everything a king's supposed to do, I'll take care of you, you just, you just follow me and, and you know, give me tribute, you know, follow me, bow down to me, all that. He just shows up. What are they going to do? Not rhetorical. What are they going to do? 
laugh at him. That's a probably. Like, really? See ya. Uh, tar and feathers come to mind, and a rail, and but, but if that man shows up, doesn't say anything, but he, he builds the walls, and he paves the roads, and he defends them, and he, he does things for them, and he shows himself worthy of being their king, then what's going to happen? The people, they're just, that's right, they're just going to fall in line. They're going to follow him. This guy is worthy of being our king. That's exactly what God does. God proves his power, proves his worthiness, though he, I know that sounds odd to our ears. God will have to prove his worthiness. But that's what he does. He proves to the people that he is a God worth following. He is the God worth following. He's going to prove to them, like I said with the, play, the plagues, that he is the only God, period. And he shows up and says, follow me. This is a, a newly defined, intimate, dynamic level of relationship, this covenant message. Any covenant would be. Marriage, for example. Hopefully, you know, depending on your culture, uh, you knew your spouse somewhat before you got married. There was a period where you got to know each other. You liked each other. You loved each other. But there was a point where you said, you know what, we're taking this, this relationship, we're going to make a covenant in marriage. And this is going to be uh, newly defined. No longer are we boyfriend-girlfriend, no longer are we fiancés, but now we are husband and wife. The world looks on us differently. Uh, it, it is more intimate, supposed to be. There is supposed to be a next level of intimacy that occurs at marriage that did not occur prior to that. That sounds like another. And then it is a more dynamic level of relationship. No longer is it a discussion about, well, you're doing this. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to do that. How can we make this work? It is we are doing this. How can we make this work? And how do we move? That's what God is doing here when he sets up this covenant with his people is called out people. Uh, in today's terminology, God is having a DTR. How many of y'all know what a DTR is? Yep. Need, come on, y'all. Define the relationship. Boyfriend, girlfriend, where's this relationship going? What are we doing? Is this real? I'll, I'll tell you. To have, yep. Uh, Etta and I had our define the relationship discussion. Uh, I'll try to do this quickly. <laughs> um, we, uh, we were separated by uh, all of Louisiana, basically, when we were dating. She was a student at uh, Washita Baptist in Arkansas, and then she did her student teaching up there in El Dorado, Arkansas, and I was in Baton Rouge. And so our relationship for the first three months, four months that we knew each other, four months that we knew each other was separated by that distance. We met each other at lunch because our mothers arranged it one day. Uh, I called her late that evening, too late to go out that evening. Yes, I know. Um, uh, so we went out the next evening. We went out a couple of weeks later. Anyway, we, we had gone out once or twice over a month or so. And I know I'm vague on the details, a couple of months. And we decided, okay, where is this going? What We're going to have an email define the relationship conversation. And uh, I said, you know, there's another girl I kind of like. Uh, mm -hmm, yeah, uh, and and so you know we're so far away. I, let's let's not 
be serious and exclusive because my, I'm thinking about asking her out. That was uh, mid-February. I didn't tell you that part. Let's pray. Um, <laughs> she knows it now. I told her later, it, it, but I just didn't tell her then. Um, I wasn't stupid. Uh, I, just, I just am now. Um, no, we, uh, we had that, that talk, and, and this was probably toward the end of February, and, uh, or right after Valentine's Day, wasn't it? Yeah, and okay, that's fine, she said. We'll, we'll do that. That lasted with me about two weeks. And I'm calling her and saying, when are you coming back to Louisiana? See, I, I had to define the relationship, but I didn't define it well. Uh, I think she knew better because she's all womanly with the in intuition and all. Uh, but I was trying to play it cool. God's not playing it cool here. God is defining the relationship and saying, hey, you will be my people and I will be your God. That's what he's doing in this covenant. So three parts of the covenant. Part one in verse four it is a reminder. God reminds his people in verse 4. Remember what I did? You know, tell Moses, he says in, in verse 3, tell the people, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. See, this wasn't just happenstance. This wasn't just about the people. This wasn't just making them a country. He was bringing them to him. It wasn't about just freeing them from slavery. It wasn't just about getting them out of Egypt. It was bringing them to him, defining the relationship, calling them out. And he reminds them that first it was a fulfilled promise. I told you I was going to do it. As a matter of fact, I told Joseph. I told Jacob, I told Abraham way back when I promised to make him a nation that they would, your, your people, they're going to be in slavery. I'm going to bring them out. I promised you. And here God keeps his promise. He reminds them that this people, this, this called out group, they have unity in their deliverance. They were all enslaved. They were all a part of uh, this system that they didn't want to be a part of. They were all to their sin, they're going to realize this as he further reveals it. But uh, he, they now have unity as this called out people of God in their deliverance. They have unity now in their faith in the one God who called them. Not the multiple gods that got humiliated, gods that aren't really gods, that got humiliated, not the multiple gods that they were probably reminded of thinking back on their time in Canaan and all the various gods of the Amalekites and the Moabites and all these others that lived there. No, no, this was unity in faith in this one God. Unity in freedom, both from slavery to people and slavery to sin. Slavery even to themselves, which is really all slavery to sin is, right? We bind ourselves to ourselves and our selfishness. Unity and preservation. God had pulled them all out. God had preserved them all. They couldn't look across the pew at somebody else and say, God loves me more than he does you. No, because he saved us all the same way. They were all doomed. They were all enslaved. And yet, he saved each one of them individually, even as he saved them corporately. There's a message there, I believe, too, that I won't preach this morning when we look across the pew and we see somebody that was worse than us 
when they got saved. No, they weren't. They were different, but they weren't worse. There was unity in this preservation. There was unity in safety. They could look around and say, I am just protect, as protected in my devotion to God as you are protected in your devotion to him. There was unity in Yahweh. Unity in this one God that they served. They stood there and they knew we are his people. We are defined not by ourselves, not by our ethnicity, not by our Jewishness, but by our God who saved us. There was unity. Part one was a reminder. Part two was a promise. Verse five. Now, if you will listen to me, God says, and carefully keep my, com- my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although all the earth is mine. He's telling them, one, they need to reflect the relationship. If you'll look like me, God says. Isn't that what Jesus tells the church today? Look like me, love like me, let this mind be in you also in Christ Jesus. Let the Spirit work through you, show the fruit of the Spirit. Those are all things that we are supposed to do in order to look like Jesus to the world, reflect that relationship that we have with him. But we also have to keep the covenant, keep his covenant. If anybody tells you that when you become a Christian that that it's not necessary to do certain things, well, they're wrong. You don't have to do certain things to become a Christian. No hoops to jump through. No, No life to clean. Let Jesus clean that life up. You come to him. But the New Testament is clear that we are called to holiness. We are called to not do today what we did yesterday that was sin in our lives. So we are to keep his covenant. It's a promise here that their position would be secure. Remember, he's the one that keeps the covenant, not us. He's the one that holds us, not we holding him. There's this promise of security in him. But there's also this promise that their position would be clear. Yes, my position as a Christian, my position as a follower of God is secure. But my position as a follower of God should also be clear to the rest of the world around us. Why? Because we are called with a purpose. The church is not called to be the church as is. The call of the church is to expand the church. The call of the people of the kingdom of God is to expand the kingdom. And so we look at Scripture, we see the reminder of what he's done, we see the promise of what he will do, but we see part three in verse six, the function of the people who are called out. And in this case, the Israelites out of Egypt. Verse six, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. Kingdom of priests. Let's look at those two phrases first. Kingdom of priests and holy nation. This kingdom of priests, we should immediately get this idea of of, uh, direct privileged relationship because that's what it is, y'all. We're going to be talking about prayer on Wednesday nights uh, in prayer meeting. Makes sense, right? We're going to spend a lot of weeks just talking about prayer, talking about what the Bible says about prayer, words that are used both in the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament to define prayer, to discuss prayer, what prayer looks like. Ultimately, what we're going to see this Wednesday 
is that prayer is a privilege because we're talking to the God of the universe who made everything. I mean, just think of the most powerful person in the world today, right now. Whoever you believe it may be, doesn't matter. Now, think of you having unfettered access to that person, to go to that person, and let's make it somebody you respect, to go to that person and say, I have a need, and that person care about that need. That person have the power, uh, having the power to meet that need. That person having the desire and the loving kindness toward you to meet that need. That's what we have in this relationship as a kingdom of priests, as uh, the Jews had as a kingdom of priests, direct privileged relationship. That's that kingdom part. But that priest's part, we now see that Israel has this mediatorial role, mediators between Yahweh and other nations. And that's what God says. You are going to be a kingdom, everybody in the kingdom, right? All the citizens of the kingdom, you will all be priests. Well, we as Baptists believe that. It's called priesthood of the believer. We each have individual access to God. That's why we don't have in our denomination or even in Protestantism priests that we have to go to in order to ask them to pray for us. Now, it is no burden and it is no problem to have somebody to pray for you, but that's just a multitude of voices reaching up to God for the same thing. That's all that is. But you, on your own, have the same access to God that I have because we are a kingdom of priests. But that is not just supposed to be uh, something for my benefit and no one else's. Because I am supposed to be a mediator between Yahweh and other nations. How do I become that? By telling people that they too can have the same access to God that I have. Telling people that there is a Savior that can break down the barrier of sin between you and God, because that is the barrier. That Savior is Jesus Christ. You can have the same relation that I have. So I mediate that. that that's what we do when we present the gospel. We're mediating that relationship. We're telling the, the enemy of God, hey, this is how you can no longer be an enemy of God. And God has already given us the basis for that in his scripture and how to explain that. So we are a kingdom of priests. Israel was a kingdom of priests. And then he also says it is a holy nation. Holy, sanctified, or set apart. That's my fault that it's in the wrong order. Go ahead and go to the next one, please, ma'am. Uh, sanctified and set apart. Different. Do you understand, or maybe you don't, have you ever heard the word goyim? It's a, now it's become kind of a Yiddish word, and it, and it just means Gentiles, the goyim a very, very good friend of mine who is, is Jewish, uh, and uh, he, he laughed hardest one day when we were playing Scrabble uh, when we were supposed to be teaching school. Um, he's at a different school now. It doesn't matter, and I'm not a teacher. So uh, we, he, I put on Scrabble Goyim, and he just thought that was hilarious that I would come up with that word, and he basically said, only you would do that, Michael, and you're right, and I did it for you, Mark. But you realize Goyim is a, is a, is a non-Jewish group right? Okay, it's Gentiles. But what does God refer to this group right here? Holy nation. You will be a sanctified goyim. You will be a group that is not just Israel. 
not just Jewish, but you'll be a group that is different. Set apart, holy in your mediatorial role, telling people about Jesus. So what do we see? Three, actually four things that God's people are. And I'm wrapping up here. God's people, first of all, we see from this passage, sought, redeemed, and gathered by God. God seeks you out. God sought you out. So the day you think, I'm something special because I'm a Christian, because I'm a member of First Baptist Church of Sulphur, or as they thought at their time, because I am a Jew, the day you think that is the day you have an issue because you didn't do anything to get there. They, they were born Jewish. God called them out to be a special people. You were be, uh, a born sinner. The, the Bible says spirit, the, the Spirit leads you to salvation. He draws us. He presents himself to us. God's people are a mix of ethnicities in a unified community. If, if we all look the same, there's a problem. Not just, not just in our four walls, but if the community of Christ all looks the same, there's a problem. And it doesn't. We might kind of get that idea after a while, living in one town or another, but that is not how it looks. God has called people from all walks of life, from all areas of the world, from all ethnicities, be a part of his unified community, and we see that in this passage. God's people, number three, are obedient and faithful. So there is a requirement for obedience. There is a requirement for faithfulness. But you know what they also are? They're forgiven when they're not obedient or faithful. Isn't that beautiful? Remember, it's God's covenant. He keeps his side of it. He also keeps our side of it. Think about that for a while. You, you're called to keep your side, but when you can't, God keeps it for you. Show me a, a debt collector that does that for you. You won't find one. Lastly, God's people are called to represent God and deliver his message. Verse 6, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. People of God this morning. If we are not sharing the gospel, if we are not living lives of obedience to Christ in the midst of our community, if we are not looking to break down every barrier that might keep someone from coming to Christ, whether that be a racial barrier or a financial barrier or some other kind of barrier, if we're not breaking those down to the best of our ability, if we are not recognizing the fact that we have no skin in the game when it comes to our salvation, we have no ability to stand before God and say, I kind of impressed you on that one, didn't I, God? Boy, aren't you kind of glad that I came to you? If, if, we don't, if, if we're not recognizing that we are utterly helpless we might not be functioning as we should as a church all the time. As a people who is called out, as a people who is God's special, special, special property, special slaves. We're special slaves. We, sometimes on the scripture, we, we, we soften that word to, to say, say servant. Y'all, we are his slaves. 
And as slaves, we don't get to pick and choose, do we? As slaves, we submit as his people and say, whatever your calling is, Lord, that I will do. This morning, I've been primarily talking to church people who are called out, the ecclesia. But I also alluded to the fact that God calls us all out, right? This morning, you might not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And even that phrase might kind of be a little wonky to you. What, what, do you. what do you mean by that? Have you ever come to a point where, where you have said, Lord, I cannot do life on my own. I am a sinner. I, 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 I realize that, that I cannot, well, I, I can't mediate my own relationship with you. I've tried. I've tried to be good enough to make you like me. I, I've tried to be good enough to earn my way to heaven, but I can't. See, God is calling you out this morning and saying to you, trust my son to save you. Don't trust you to save you. See, the gospel is this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We all are enemies of God. We are all, at best, hope of his community. But generally, when we're at this point in sin, we're, we're not even hoping for that. We've got to have it explained to us that you are God's enemy. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of that sinfulness is death. We deserve death. As a matter of fact, that's our payment for it. That's all we deserve. But the gift of God, this, this free opportunity to fix the problem, this free opportunity to come to Him, this, this drawing that He does to our hearts toward Him is through His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Even while we are our most decrepit, despicable, sinful, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. So if you doubt his love for you, God could never love me. Michael, you don't know what I've done in my life. Michael, you don't know what I did last night. You don't know what's going on in my life right now. Let me say this with as much compassion as I can. I don't care. Because God loves you anyway. It doesn't matter what you've done. Oh, I care. I care that you hurt. I care that you're wrapped up in sin. But let me tell you that God, while he cares, he loves you anyway. And that is what he did, what he proved on that cross. While you are in your worst state, Christ died for you. Romans 10, 23, doesn't matter who you are, anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. All you have to do is call on him. If you feel that pulling this morning, that's him. Call on him to be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. That is a covenant message to you this morning. That is God wanting to define the relationship, redefine the relationship with you this morning, and wanting to do that through the blood of his son on that cross. Your relationship with God's not good? Let him redefine it with you this morning. Let him work on your heart 
as you come to Jesus and say, I cannot do it on my own. I trust you for my salvation. Pray with me. Lord, God, we thank you that you define the relationship. Lord, our relationship with you is, is, is heinous prior to Jesus. But God, you redefine that relationship through your son. Thank you that you do that for us. God, you didn't have to. You didn't have to call that people out of Israel. You didn't have to call them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, but you did. You didn't have to call me out of my sin and make me your child, but you did. Lord, you don't have to call anyone here this morning, but you are. Calling someone this morning to be your child, adopting them. And Lord, I pray that they would heed your call, that they would then call out themselves on your name to be saved. They you, turn their lives over to you, and experience the salvation that you have set for them. In Jesus' name, amen. So how should you respond? Is there a salvation need in your life? Maybe you need to come and accept Christ this morning. Maybe there's somebody you want to pull aside and talk to. Uh, maybe Miss Amy is who, who you're familiar with, or a deacon. I'll be down front as well, and I can pray with you. But you want to do that this morning. You come and you give your heart to Jesus. Maybe you need to uh, be baptized. You've given your heart to him. But you've not followed in obedience as you should in baptism. You can that today. Maybe you just need to recommit, to let G Jesus redefine the relationship again for you. Maybe you need to join First Baptist Sulphur. Maybe God's calling you to a greater ministry, a mission field, something that you've been putting off for years, maybe 50 or 60 years, and this morning you just say, Michael, God's calling me to preach, and I don't know what to do. I'm going to tell you preach. What is God doing with you this morning? I guarantee you, God's doing something. You've heard his word. Now is your chance to respond. You respond as God leads. Let's do business with God this morning as Donald leads us.